Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and back on the show is Mr. David Scott. Buongiorno, guten tag, g'day, it's great to be back. Uh, looking forward to hearing maybe uh, one or two stories from your trip. Um, our guest this week on the show, um, uh, back on the show for, uh, uh, I think this is uh, appearance number four or five um, for James. Um, he's a stalwart James Whelan, investment manager at uh, VFS Group, a private wealth management, uh, management company in Sydney. How are you, James? Fantastic, Paul. Great to be here. So, look, we're going to look at the domestic outlook in light of the week capex. We'll, you know, look at maybe touch on risk aversion in corporate Australia. Um, we'll obviously get to this uh, situation with rates. Uh, Westpac uh, lifting um, variable rates this week by 14 basis points. We'll also look with James here, uh, who manages um, the Global Macro Fund at uh, VFS Group. We'll look at the global out- outlook, uh, maybe touch on NAFTA quickly. Uh, and of course, we'll uh, probably uh, tackle the big question on every mind, everybody's mind in Australia at the moment, which is what is the go with the au pairs? Um, I'm just kidding. Um, let's get straight into the domestic outlook. Um, Dave, CapEx week, um, building approvals, a uh, huge amount of supply coming on um, in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, banks are raising rates. Um, the Aussie dollar got beaten up when um, uh, Westpac made its announcement. Uh, yesterday, so we're recording on Thursday. Um, how nervous are you? Well, it certainly seems to be a bit more darker than when I left, and that's only three weeks ago, but uh, things change very quickly nowadays. Uh, obviously, the uh, the housing downturn is nothing new. Uh, how the housing market would then go and react now to this uh, out-of-cycle mortgage rate increase from Westpac, uh, with the other three majors probably likely to follow suit, whether it's going to be the same degree, higher or lower, I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly it does seem to be a little bit darker about uh, the Australian economy once again. And no, I'm sure the next week when we're talking about GDP growth, when uh, it's going to be probably senior somewhere around about 0.7, 0.8%, uh, the, the mood might change. But uh, I think you know, generally, just since I've come back, I've just noticed that you know, things seem to be very bearish, particularly around housing again. I'm not sure where that's changed since I left, but mm. uh, it certainly seems to be a bit darker than what it was. Yeah, it just seems to be fairly consistent. Hey, the, the, you know, there's... Um We've got this issue now with uh, the banks uh, tightening prices um, that's going to probably suck a little bit out of, well, it, it is going to suck a little bit of available cash out of um, so, um, some households, uh, uh, you know, monthly budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, that's likely to flow on to um, discretionary sector, et cetera. So, um, and we may not see the full impact of this, obviously, until well, certainly with any rate rises, we're not going to see the impact of it for, for a little while yet. Um, but uh, between now and the end of the year, it's certainly going to get very interesting, hey? It will be, particularly with what's going on abroad as well. Obviously, we're going to discuss uh, you know, some of the trade negotiations that are going on at the moment. But uh, you know, as we go to where, once again, emerging markets are starting to get beaten up once again. And uh, no, there is some concerns about what's happening in the global economy, for sure, because you wouldn't see this kind of reaction going on if there, unless there were some, uh, some real concerns out there about what the outlook for the global economy is over the, uh, the next few months. James, you look at this pretty closely. And one, this has been a pretty remarkable shift, hasn't it, um, since where we were last year where we had this situation where um, basically the entire world economy uh, looked like it was um, going pretty well. It had found some kind of sweet spot. We talked about those PMIs. Um, I think it's uh, JP Morgan does a does, does a, ma- a heat map of uh, PMIs around yeah. the world, and the whole thing was green. Yeah, it was um, a beautiful the, the beautiful map that you had, and I use that a lot, especially with clients and presentations that I did, of just saying the world is the world is okay. Um, you can get involved, yeah. and, and it was most you know it was mostly green. If you sort of squint and looked at that map, it's okay. It looks mostly green. PMIs is is if you're only going to look at one thing, look at that. 
mm-hmm. think I learned that from you, Dave. Um, the the uh, that, that that was so green. Have you noticed now? And again, this might be me quoting you, um, Dave. I've I've been ripping you off for, for years, actually. Just <laughs> um, that uh, surprise you, you're still in a job. That's what <laughs> that's what keeps me. That's what keeps me going. Uh, the um, that do do you notice that you don't hear the term global synchronized growth anymore? Or synchronized global growth anymore? It's just not a thing that's that's done. Europe is shaky. England is a, a basket case. I, I, I now we're at the stage where I don't even follow what happens in England every day. It's it's a situation of let me know when that's resolved and then we'll go. Uh, Trump is trying to do what he thinks is best for him, not necessarily the USA. Um, whether that is a, a, a help or a hindrance, then that's it. There just doesn't seem to be the same. Yeah, definitely not the same exuberance that there was last year. And Australia, well, Dave, while you were away, we've got a new Prime Minister um, and confidence could not be... Oh, yeah, that, by the way. I couldn't couldn't even escape that. And given the rugby result as as well, I was thinking I should maybe tell some of the other people that I'm a Kiwi. uh, So it was was such a terrible thing to go wake up. But it just came out of nowhere. Like, no, obviously I'm not really paying close attention to the uh, the, the twos and fro's of uh, Australian politics on the way, like in the Adriatic Sea and whatnot. But... uh, yeah, I couldn't even escape that, and it was, uh, you know, it was surprising how quickly it actually eventuated. You know, um, just on those emerging markets, uh, they're just going back to that just really quickly. Um, Turkey, right? So um, we had Shane Oliver, uh, Shane Oliver, on uh, the show here a couple of weeks ago, and we went through this Turkey business in in, in pretty great detail, and you know, talking about the, the the risk of a pretty significant balance of payments crisis. That would be caused by the um, the big depreciation in the lira. And just before we came into the show, we saw the lira was getting beaten up again. Um, it's had another bad 24 hours. Um, and I saw um, there was a note from Capital Economics, a guy, a, 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 an economist, an emerging markets economist there, uh, called D- Jason Tuvi, uh, and he thinks that uh, Turkey has been plunged into a recession already. Um, he said he noted that confidence in the construction, retail, and services sector has plumbed to record low, um, and he was looking at the economic confidence index. Uh, it's called uh, Turksat. Turks ah, yes, the Turks uh, set, of course. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that well-known economic confidence index. But anyway, that's their <laughs> that's their monthly uh, confidence gauge. And he said, based on past form, the data is consistent with the economy contracting by about three percent year on year. So it's a pretty big downturn, pretty and, suddenly. And in a, if you're into fractals too, that that small self-fulfilling prophecy, which it, which which it may be that okay, we're gonna we'll, we'll plunge you into this, and then that's going to plunge them into something else, and then. Then the word contagion was thrown around a lot a few weeks uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, the exposure um, of the Spanish banks. And you saw yeah, the Spanish bank exposure, and then also anything anything with a with a balance of payments issue. Uh, not to go into that too deeply because that's a very boring web of boredom. That uh, that the, 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 uh, the contagion it spread over so South African rand got properly dumped, uh, and it it was just okay. What else can we get rid of? That's just, that's just got to be OP situation and and that that contagion so what we see that fractal of turkey being in that self-fulfilling prophecy of a plunge is widespread more in emerging markets from it all also being in a self-fulfilling prophecy which also comes from a, a big debt problem that they've got um with the, with the debt numbers going up on that and uh i had it written down here that that what dollar debt in emerging markets surged from 1.5 trillion US 10 years ago to 3.7 trillion in March. Um, it was just a little thing that I had written down here. Uh, we in see the space that as of three years, 10 years. 
It's basically ten years. Ten years. Okay, so so it's 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 more than doubled in in ten, but that's U.S. dollar denominated risk. Dave, I mean, you, you're you're going to be able to speak to this beautifully, I know, if you want to. But the uh, we see that as being the the air in the balloon, and it's just a matter of what it is that that either pops it, um, which will be a Donald Trump thing probably, or just releases the air, and we think that that's going to be more. If if it's going to be the second one, it'll be one of the two. Um, we don't see it as as going anywhere up anytime soon. Um, that that air gets released just through that contagion of uh, through the self fulfilling prophecy of of that debt spiral and then having to fix it and and things just getting worse generally in the emerging market space. Yeah, it's a bit of a domino effect, as uh, you know, people have discussed in the past, and I'm, I'm keeping an eye as well on Brazil. I think they've got elections coming up later this year. Um, obviously, a very very large emerging market as well, so they've got their fiscal problems as well. Uh, and you throw that into the mix you now, along with what we've been discussing about Turkey and the like. Uh, you know, and we won't even get into Italy, which is not even part of the emerging markets problem. But that's obviously simmering away yes. in the background. That um, yeah, not not a, not a problem yet. But we'll put uh, it back into the emerging market space pretty soon if you want. But certainly, like no, you're seeing a lot of these, these heavily indebted you know, countries that have gone taken on a lot of debt quickly. Uh, they run big current account deficits, uh, uh, fiscal deficits as well. They're the ones where it's coming home to roost at the moment. And uh, as James rightly said, uh, if this continues at the current path, I don't think there'll be many that will be left spared. It's uh, one of those things where you, if one starts to really unravel, then you expect a whole emerging markets trade probably to go and unravel with it. Well, I thought one thing that was interesting that I saw as well this week was the um, uh, Indian uh, rupee also joining in the uh, the, the party, um, mm. hitting an all-time low against the the US dollar. Even today on Thursday, it's it's been, uh, got uh, record highs or record lows, should I say, against the US dollar again today. So once again, you know, running uh, deficits and the like, and you know, we're seeing that you know the, the lift in US uh, funding costs, you know, the kindness of others they're relying upon to go and fund them. This is what's happening to the currencies. So funding costs. Um, before we get on to uh, Westpac and uh, mortgage rates, uh, et cetera, but funding costs are an important uh, question um, for businesses um, as well as the home loan market. Um, so in terms of their ability to go and invest and borrow and um, you know, invest in the future of the Australian economy. And we had a big update today, uh, Dave, in the CapEx data. Yes, private sector capex uh, was very soft, uh, much softer than what the market was expecting. So we saw a decline in the uh, June quarter of two and a half percent. Both uh, plant uh, equipment uh, and machinery spending was down, which is a direct GDP input. So that will go and detract slightly from our GDP uh, growth next week. Uh, and also the, uh, the investment intentions for the current financial year. We've got our third update uh, of that today. And Somewhat worryingly, the uh, no, the expected update for uh, spending in non-mining, so we're talking about services and manufacturing, was a little bit softer than what uh, had been implied by the previous uh, estimate and the, and the first one before that, um, which sort of raises a few doubts about whether this uh, this investment surge that was going to come through from non-mining sectors to help you know, bolster the economy and improve our productivity and the like will actually go and occur. On the flip side, though, uh, the mining sector seems to be a little bit more uh, no, upbeat about what they intend to spend. So who knows, maybe the mining sector will come back to, uh, to rescue the Australian economy once again. We'll, uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, Robert Rennie, um, who is um, uh, sometimes a guest on the show, um, he's a, a global strategist at Westpac. Uh, he pointed out uh, today that uh, his um, estimates uh, for the 1819 uh, year being um, 
plus 3% for manufacturing versus plus 9% in the last estimate. And services being flat. So services, the great white hope of um, the Australian economy, being flat in, in terms of CapEx intentions versus 5% growth previously. Uh, and then total being 1% versus 1.5% uh, growth uh, previously. So, yeah, so, I'm happy to call that significant. Yeah, um, and the, the thing is here, right, this is like, it goes back years that we were talking about the importance of CapEx uh, and investment intentions by businesses to the, um, to the Australian economy, right? So um, that uh, it, it really, Glenn Stevens used to talk about this, like where are the animal spirits? You know, he got interest rates down to record lows and still wasn't seeing a lift in uh, investment intentions and delivery uh, of investment by by companies. Um, now, look, there's a lot of theories about this. One is that the changing mix of economic uh, activity may mean that some services, businesses, which are the big growing part of the economy, might not be as capital in- intensive as other parts like um, like mining. mining in particular. Um, <clears throat> so there's a big adjustment period there where you're coming off this massive amount of investment that came through the pipeline in the, in the mining boom. Yeah, we all, we all heard the term the mining capex cliff ad nauseum yes, over yeah. the last uh, last few years, which now looks like it's done. But yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, and but it, and this is the thing: it, it, those animal spirits or that sort of okay, right? Look, interest rates are low. It's cheap to borrow money. Um, uh, we can take take on some risk here and, and have a crack at a few things, and it never sort of materialized. Um, and it's really a question about, you know, what is the what holds Australian businesses back from doing this, James? I've always got a very simplistic way of looking at these things without um, drilling down into the numbers because myself, as not an economist or working for for a bank with a team of analysts, we, we prefer just to look at the simple thing of confidence. It's just the it's just the mace, the, the the most basic element of why a business would want to invest in the future um, and and do you actually do you think I mean what is a capex investment effectively you, you need to say that with with certainty or with you know more certainty than not that an investment in X is going to produce a return of a y. certain return yeah. and 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 that that's going to help us perpetuate or we could keep this money in our pocket and pay it out as, as a dividend or um, buy back our own stock. Don't forget that's that's also been a very popular thing to do over the last few years, which has also helped asset prices in America inflate beautifully. But the, uh, the, the there's been other ways of of, of but doing. Also, it. Telstra I will point out because when they changed their um, when they announced that they were going to cut dividends and decide to uh, invest in the future of the company, the share price got absolutely monstered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's funny the way that shareholders will punish companies for actually for actually doing that. And I remember what happened a few uh, it was a few months ago. They sort of did a survey. Uh, it would, would would have been a half year ago because I'm thinking about US results. So it would have been a half year ago um, that came through. And just how many of them that, that it was Morgan Stanley, I believe, went through. And monitored uh, every listed company's um, after after presentation calls, so the calls that they do after the results are put through, and just how uh, you know often times that they talked about capex and what they and, and if they were going to spend it or, or buy it back. With cheap free money, it's so easy just to go back in and buy your own stock back and, and artificially inflate your own asset prices. Um, is this a time when you should have been using that cheap money to expand, and that way when money you know when money gets more expensive as as it goes. What are you going to do now? Um, as rates are going up and things are a bit more expensive, I, I still think it, it is that confidence level 
that's coming in. In Australia, uh, I can't count now, I've got an eight-year-old and she has gone through five prime <laughs> ministers, I'm thinking, sort of. So um, it's it's there, there's a little bit of a lack of confidence is, is for us a, a definite telltale sign on that. Well, look, um, certainly if you're in the energy sector uh, or if you're in the mining sector and you're looking at Australia as a place where you might go and invest, um, how can you tell what the policy settings are going to be relative to our, your industry? I, still, I can't remember what desk it was that I was on at the time, but when was it the Gillard government brought in the mining tax? And for the first time, uh, I think in, in either a very long time or forever, that people actually started talking about Australia being a sovereign risk, which usually you would reserve for the Democratic Republic of Congo or uh, Tanzania um, in some cobalt play or a, or a oh, some whatever the hot... What's the hot metal at the moment? I don't know what it is now, lithium or something like that. But the, uh, but, but, but that's a thing. And then all of a sudden it was like, no, okay, Australia is now a sovereign risk. The government is now trying to, you know, take a, a big bag of cash out of, out of the investments of mining companies. Here's the thing, though. Um, so Rudd initially proposed the mining tax, if you remember, and then he got rolled on that. And then um there was the uh, emissions trading scheme proposal which the gillard government went um which julia gillard tied up with the greens and decided to um uh, bring forward um which caused all sorts of problems uh, for her but um the um and that of course uh the it was a tax on emissions which was also going to affect big heavy industry like mining and gas exploration. Um, so, um, you know, I, I just think I've, for those companies looking at Australia now, like just the massive uncertainty that they have of what's the energy mix going to be, um, who is going to be in charge, um, will they come up with some kooky scheme that we weren't, um, uh, that we're not factoring into our current proposals that shave um, a few hundred basis points off our return on, on a project. Um, and I do think it's a problem. I think it's, I think it's, it causes issues. Probably, I, I, I'm sure there are companies that have decided against uh, investing in Australia as a result of that. Um, and the Aussie so, dollar, the Aussie dollar tells you the story on what's going on that one. We're happy to stay short on that, uh, as are a lot of people. And, and the continuing, the continuing sale of the Aussie against Dave, just the US most. Well, depending on who it, who it is on the other side of the on the other side of the fence, that the 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 the, the, is, the Aussie is telling the story for us on that. Yeah, well, the Aussie dollar has been obviously sold off. I'm not sure how much it is actually on the uh, the political risk side of things. There's uh, obviously a lot of uh, you know things that are going on in the world economy at the moment that the Australian dollar is factoring in. But uh, no, certainly when that uh, the briefly during that uh, no three or four days, I think it was uh, where the uh, whole political uncertainty was uh, at its peak. Uh, the Aussie dollar certainly underperformed then, but it bounced back fairly quickly. Then it results back to what it normally does. And at the moment, it's got a fairly close correlation with what's going on with the Chinese UN. I can't see that change anytime soon because China is our largest trading partner. What happens there is going to happen here. So uh, uh, I see what you're saying in relation to the, the, obviously there is big concerns about who's going to be in charge and whatnot. But uh, I think most most investors overseas would still see Australia as a very solid investment destination, AAA rated. You know, the economy's doing okay without doing spectacularly well. But uh, yeah, the Aussie, Aussie dollar is actually, you know, by falling, it's actually giving us a little bit of a, a tailwind, which would be, you know, beneficial for the time being. Yeah. Um, so 
Um, 70, 72, 73 cents is kind of level it's, um, it's, it's parking around at the moment. Yeah, it seems fairly comfortable around there at the moment. No, there's a lot of calls out there for it to go and weaken a bit further in the, uh, the months ahead into uh, the end of 2018. I can't see a problem with that at all at the moment, the way the things are looking. Uh, the, the key thing to go and look out for, obviously, is know whether there's a resolution in the trade dispute between uh, China and the US. If there's a positive outcome there, then I suspect the Aussie dollar will be one of the uh, top performing assets, if not the, the top performing asset uh, you know, globally. You know, if that will still occur. Yeah. Um, so one, one of the um, factors for that and one of the big triggers for a move uh, this week in the Aussie was um, this decision by Westpac. It came at about 3.30 in the afternoon, um, just announcing that they were going to tack 14 basis points onto variable mortgage rates. Um, Dave, do you want to talk us through what happened and um, the, how the market uh, reacts to an announcement like that? Well, it's a de facto uh, rate increase. So the RBA hasn't increased rates, but Westpac has. Uh, the market, when it took Westpac's decision as a sign that the other majors will follow suit, uh, so it basically wiped out you know, pretty much all of the, you know, the potential rate increases that were being factored in by the market uh, over the next 12 months in one swift move. So you saw the Aussie dollar react fairly violently to that. Uh, it was down half a percent uh, you know, in a matter of seconds. Uh, it, rebounded slightly, but it basically just reinforces the point that you've got a de facto and a tightening of uh, monetary policy. Uh, you've, it's targeted at the housing market, which everyone is, can freely admit at the moment is concerned about. Uh, so you put that into the mix as to know, in this kind of environment, will the Reserve Bank of Australia be sitting there at their, uh, their table up in Martin Place and say, no, this is a good time to be hiking rates anytime soon? The answer is almost certainly not. Uh, the question whether uh, it will go and lead to a potential rate cut is the really interesting one, depending on what the other majors do and then the subsequent reaction of uh, no, both households and businesses to uh, that increase in, uh, in, in borrowing costs. James, it all makes for a very interesting environment for the banks. Um, the environment, shall we say, was interesting enough already um, with the Royal Commission uh, and just the general standing uh, with the public. Um, how do you think this might play out from here? I like the way that that th there's a few options. It was funny the way that Westpac came out and just said it's it's due to wholesale, it's due to our funding costs, and and it, very interesting the way they just went straight to it. And this sort of goes into one of our th the theses that we had last year on on the banks that there's a few alternatives that you got your NIM, sorry your net interest margin, which is a bank's lifeblood, starts to get squeezed. So you got to find some way to make that back and keep that going if you want to, which you have to because that's your job. So you can either um, pass it on through a rate increase to try and make that NIM back, which is what Westpac did, or the alternatives are take it out of the dividend potentially. If you do that, uh, well, super funds, um, pretty much everyone owns the banks, uh, almost in every single super fund in Australia, I would wager, uh, just about. Um, so then that would actually affect the stock price. So you're going to hurt... Um, super funds and, and future retirees and current retirees in two ways. One, less income, and two, the, their capital appreciation is, is going to be declined. So you're going to hurt people either way. So either way, people are going to cop it, if you know what I mean. Now what we've got is – now this is – I'm, I'm working on a bit of a speculatory story on this one here. You've got a new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, fan of his, um, which is great. Um, I, was, I was a fan of Turnbull as well, fan of, uh, fan of stability, fan of um, – Morrison as well. He was um, vehemently active in fighting off a royal commission. There's no lie about that. And Labor have shown their hand. I think they showed they showed their hand within hours or even before he went into the into the party room meeting to decide who the new leader was going to be. 
Labor's attack on him is going to be this man is a friend of the banks. Um, he fought. What are they saying? He, he he voted against the Royal Commission twenty seven times, and um, that that's going to be their main target that they've got on him. We think it is possible strategically, um, especially since we think that there's probably going to be an election sooner rather than later. You, you capture your honeymoon period when you do, um, when you become a new leader. That he's going to come out and go as heavy as he can and say, "You're right, as leader of the country now." Um, it is our time to represent the people, and I think that the banks have done wrong. He's got enough justification. It's a, it's a flip-flop, but you get to do that when you're the Prime Minister. You can say, now I'm here, I'm in charge, we've seen what the Royal Commission has done. We are being led by the Royal Commission, or, or we, we've got this foundation, we've got this case to build on, and the attack on the banks then comes. That's just a speculation at the moment, but strategically thinking, when you play the tape to the end, that, that, that makes the most sense. Um, using the old Occam's razor on this, that the most you know that the, the simplest approach is probably going to be the right one. That well, he can also point, I think, as well to the um, uh, his introduction as treasurer of the um, the um, liabilities tax uh, oh, yes. that he in, that he introduced. So can kind of say, well, look, um, I do have a record of um, taking on the banks when needs be. Um, so there's always the option to change the um, level of the the bank liabilities tax, so increase that a little bit, recover some extra money. Um, but the political environment at the moment, you have to say, is um, certainly one that invites consideration of the prospect of further pretty dramatic regulatory interventions if, and uh, in, on, in the financial services. So if, if he comes out and, and goes hard on an attack on the banks and has, and has the findings of the Royal Commission to back him up, which he will, um, then he's basically removed an entire platform of opposition from the Labor Party um, in, the, in the upcoming election. And that's a big thing. All of a sudden, you've, you've just basically removed all of the ammunition that they got and then they've got to find some other stuff. There's lots of other stuff, but that is one of the things that they won't be able to, to attack him on. Um, and so whatever it is that they're going to talk about, CBA already on the, on, the, on the front foot with regards to removing their wealth management and all the extraneous divisions except for Comsec um, and, and credit to Matt Common for that idea too. I think that that's probably a, a direction that they're going to go. We keep on saying that by force or by choice, uh, no Australian bank will own any of these extraneous divisions um, uh, going forward within a year, we say. So uh, seeing a big split up of the banks, which then play again, continue to play the tape to the end, it means, God forbid, that banks actually get valued globally with respect to the to their peers around the world, U.S. banks, um, uh, American bank, uh, sorry, uh, European banks, that you actually can value them based on just the banking as opposed to all of this other stuff that banks have done, which means that that then they suddenly become quite overvalued. Um, and pretty much if the other assets are wrapped up into them, if the yeah. if the other assets uh, assets are gone, and then you've just got a pure banking play yeah, yeah, that yeah. doesn't have anything else, then you can value it value it based on all the other ones. And price book is the way that people do it, but I don't like going into that sort of fundamentals because it's a way of getting lost. But um, but that on that comparison, our banks are massively overvalued with regards to their foreign counterparts. So pretty much every scenario that you and I have just talked about now doesn't have a lot of upside for our banks. Mic drop. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with David Scott and James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. Okay, um, so all of this makes Dave a uh, picture very interesting for um, the RBA once again, doesn't it? Uh, so people have been talking about um, rates um, being on hold for longer and longer. We're getting this steady drumbeat of 
economists coming forward saying, actually, we've got to push out our, um, our rate forecast further. Um, so our forecast for a rate increase um, a bit further out. So no wonder we, Westpac went and extended theirs to the end of 2020. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, um, uh, you know, there's um, a whole bunch of uh, more reasons now for um, the RBA not to raise rates, isn't there? Um, is it changing the equation much for them, do you think? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Uh, as I said, it comes down to a lot of the reaction with the other majors and what they're going to do and then how uh, the borrowers then go and uh, react to, uh, no, to any increase in borrowing costs. I think the, the big risk at the moment, is, and it is growing at the, all the time, is that the RBA might actually run out of time to go and hike rates. They may never actually go and get to go and increase rates uh, because you talk about, you know, look what's going on in the rest of the global economy. We're already seeing some sputtering signs in, in various parts of the world. China's economy looks like it's a bit, you know, a bit wobbly, not, uh, not anything spectacularly bad, but uh, it's undergoing waver a bit. The U.S. economy, I think everyone is kind of at, the, at that point where they think this is the peak. You know, we saw a 4.2% uh, season just at annual rate GDP, for GDP yep, yep. that was released uh, overnight. No, really punchy numbers, and they're unlikely to be sustained. So the U.S. economy is near its peak, and it's been leading things. Uh, then you look at the emerging markets and go, well, where, where in the emerging markets is there really signs of like you no know, strong, a strong upswing that's already taken away? There isn't. Um, so if you've got this cause now, so that say so that markets are not thinking that there's going to be a rate hike until you know into 2020. Now, what's the global economy going to look like in 2020? If it's slowing down. I'm not sure how the RBA could possibly justify in that such environment to go and increase rates, which to me says that uh, no, the risk is that they're on hold for a very, very long period of time, or there is a growing chance that there will be a rate cut at some point. How that will go, and, uh, will that be beneficial to the economy? I'm not sure, but they'll have to go and try something because you cannot go and let uh, no, the status quo remain. If the global economy is, uh, is starting to slow and the Australian economy, which is highly linked to that, is also not very strong at the same time. So uh, one thing you're going to that's definitely something that risk that is building all the time is that they actually may run out of time to go and have any tightening cycle whatsoever. So that leaves them potentially in a situation where we're in this low rate environment for a very long period of time, uh, because like think about right, the Fed's the Fed's challenge mm. here, right? Um, tightening, um, but tightening at a point where it's starting to look a little bit fragile and coming off basically a zero base um, in this tightening cycle. Um, so, I mean, where could you see rates getting up to in like Fed rates get, um, getting up to? when, you know, the likelihood is that um, we are getting closer and closer to some kind of downturn in the, in the U.S. economy because there's a cycle. Mm -hmm. This is an absolutely historically large uh, period of expansion, um, and there's lots of little indicators that it's, um, it's peaking, as you mentioned. So like, what, what do you think happens with Fed rates? 
Oh, they're going to they will keep hiking rates. I've, I'm on data that they're going to keep hiking rates the current trajectory um, because they're looking ahead and they're sole focused on what's going on in the US economy. They're not not as focused on the, the global economy as what let's say the RBA are because we're much more influenced. They're talking about a big economy, uh, so they're looking you know, two years ahead with their decisions. Now I've already got you no know, 4.2 percent uh, you know, GDP growth. Uh, yes, that's unlikely to be sustained, but the the risk is that if they let the current economic cycle and, and this upswing get out of control in terms of like, you know, unemployment drops further, inflation does start to go and pick up quite sharply, leading them to have to go and hike aggressively, then that will just go and exacerbate an even bigger downturn in the future. What they're trying to do is manage the cycle. So when the next downturn, so the acceleration, deceleration in their economic uh, growth starts to occur, it will be slow and steady rather than some like you no know, sharp, abrupt plunge like we saw during the GFC. So um, when you ask me about what the Fed's going to do, they're going to keep doing what they're doing uh, until you know, there's some cataclysmic disaster what's going on in the global economy. I think they're solely focused on what's going on back Domestically. home. And James, a big part of this is obviously um, uh, all the trade talks. Um, uh, there's a big political foil we have to uh, acknowledge um, uh, as we head towards the US midterms. Uh, but um, NAFTA, um, so interesting question for you, for you because I know you um, uh, certainly, I think, to, in a client note a few weeks back, you were talking about how you, oh, it was a couple of months back now, that you had a big EM short on and it was tied to a stronger dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're obviously watching this pretty closely. Uh, NAFTA negotiations uh, underway. Um, so what do you see when you look at that? Uh, yeah. Oh, the, gee, where, where do you start on this one? So, um, yes, there is a big political um, side to those. Just going on with what David said uh, a, a, a while ago with regards to political tensions in, in EM space, uh, uh, bringing about some other change as well. The same thing happened in Mexico as well. So the, uh, the Mexicans have got a new president, um, far left. I'm going to go for it here, everyone. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, which apparently you can uh, you can uh, con- uh, construct into, what is it? It's a, an acronym into uh, an AMLO. Uh, but anyway, so, so he's just come in. He doesn't want to have a bombshell early in his term. That would, uh, that would come from... Uh, some sort of financial, you know, issue or collapse, and so um, been quick to agree to uh, a NAFTA. Uh, what is sort of a, a prelude to a NAFTA agreement? It's an agreement to agree on this one. It's not even set. And even so, if you actually break it down, there's only two actual changes to NAFTA anyway, which has been an increase in the percentage of parts that need to be um, derived from North American countries, and also a, a guarantee that. Um, uh, factories that are used uh, at pay at least $16 an hour um, and those sorts of details. It's not massive, but the thing is that Trump has has what looks like a win. Um, he's had Canada rushing. I'm very, very puzzled by the whole thing. Canada rushing to come to the table um, and and meet him on whatever terms that uh, that he decides on, on what I'm calling new NAFTA. I'm not going to call it whatever nonsense he wants to call it because it doesn't have a name yet um, that's going to come to. It also means that Trump can sit back and say, and he has done, China can wait and they put them well and truly on the back burner, and they've actually used the term back burner, and, and, and to say that China can wait. It means that he gets to go into the midterms in November with a, I've got a deal rid- for farmers, deal for a, manufacturing. A deal, a deal for us, a deal for, and also I've gotten rid of, and this is why it was so keen for him to change the name of it, is that he can say, I've, just, I've got rid of NAFTA, which was a bad deal for us. So he can go into that. So he's used what the, the Mexican political situation as it is to his advantage, 
or him or whoever's advising him, um, the uh, and he's got the Canadians on board. He gets to go in there saying, um, I've, I've, I've redone NAFTA, which was a bad deal, into whatever you know the, the Trump deal is going to be called. He also gets to say, we've got China on a leash. They're struggling. They're on the phone and we're not answering. And that's that's a key thing. And you know that the theatre of this man is going to be very similar on the, uh, on that on how that goes. Um, and there's not a single thing about that that isn't true going into November. He will have that, which makes you know he's got his political thing coming up. Um, it's possible that the Republicans don't ever discount the voting public of Americans and and how much they actually do like Trump and vote for him. Um, and so we we haven't in the past, and we don't plan to at any time soon. Um, with regards to the US dollar, just going on with that, there's a situation uh, in, in that regard too. So you've got the Chairman Jerome Powell, he's not only has to try and manage the economy and, and overcooking interest rate rises, he's got to try and manage a president that has unpresidentially and unprecedented um, attacks on the Fed for, for raising the right, rates too high, um, which is bizarre. But so September, so let's just go through it. September is done, September is cooked in. Is baked in mm-hmm. September rise. Mm-hmm. Um, how many more coming on after that? I'll just sort of go through a couple. Two uh, more. No, no, That's it. Likely another one at the end of this year, yeah. and then uh, probably two, maybe even three, depending on uh, what happens next year. But yeah. that's that's the, the likely scenario. So, so certainly, you know, another two this year. I think is probably you no know, close to baked in. Now, in the same way that we we're talking about the banks, I don't see a lot of scenarios where the US dollar goes down from where it is. So the first time, I think probably the last time I was on here on May. Um, we were talking about how there was a huge unwinding of the short positions in the US. Um, that unwind is most probably still going on, but also is now an actual we need to go long dollars. And here it comes around to this self-fulfilling prophecy again. Long dollars um, impacts emerging markets in a, in a downwards fashion, um, which then means, and as we saw the last time that the emerging market space had these jitters, we saw money coming out of EM funds, emerging market funds, and it all went straight to a rush for US dollars. So the US dollar actually got stronger. That, that, that was the safe haven trade. There's no reason why that won't be the next safe haven trade the next time that there is significant jitters in the, in the emerging market space. And so then that's gonna be stronger dollars, which will then hurt emerging markets. And then the dog chases its tail and it looks like that Labrador that you've got um, until it catches it. And when it catches it, you don't wanna be around. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Let's just um, look at this very quickly, Dave. The yield curve, which is um, we touched on very briefly earlier, it's been tightening again. Uh, it was 26 basis points. Um, flattening again. <laughs> um, sorry, flattening. Um, so it was 26 basis points between the, the twos and tens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came into, I think, less than 19 for a little bit last in the last few days. But um, Yes, and it's hanging around there. Um, so you know, everyone's on recession watch. It's becoming mainstream, as I saw someone going right during the week. So everyone's starting to go and talk about, geez, you know, if this goes uh, negative in the not too distant future, how long? And we'll start the countdown clock. Within two years, the US will be in a recession. Uh, it's really interesting. Like the the Fed, most Fed members are giving this impression that uh, there's not as much concern in relation to what it is what's doing now than what it has done in previous cycles. Purely for the fact of what's been going on with quantitative easing around the world, which is still going on in ECB, uh, still going on in the Bank of Japan, certainly. Uh, how much that's the depressing uh, long-term uh, bond yields, but. It would be going against history because we've seen almost every single occasion that it's gone negative. It's been followed by a recession within uh, the next 18 months or so. Um, so I can imagine that it's the very fact that if it was to go negative uh, no sooner, and, and look, if the Fed keeps hiking rates this year, there's every chance it could go negative you know, at the end of this year, early next year. Um, the psychology 
and having known what's happened in the past and that's occurred, how markets will react, exactly. how, no, how yeah. businesses will react, yeah. how households will react will be the, the really big question because will all, everyone start going, okay, well, now we're going to start hunkering down and get the uh, Smith & Wesson. And the, uh, yeah. the, 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 so businesses uh, stop borrowing, uh, consumers stop spending. You, yeah. ju you just don't know. But no, this is becoming you know, mainstream. People are now well aware of what, what it means. Uh, and if that becomes you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy, like, oh, no, well, the recession's on the way, uh, geez, it could exacerbate a recession fairly quickly. I hope it doesn't. But, uh, you know, you're talking about how you're going to go and judge the actions of billions of people around the world. You just simply can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of, part of the thing with the yield curve is it, like it's also about the tightening, like m money getting more expensive to borrow in the short term, right? So mm -hmm. That's what it all comes down to. It's, yeah. about, the, it's about that borrowing lending time and, and that everyone's, okay, the yield curve, it's, it was, you know, it's flattening, it's flattening. It's actually... I mean, and Dave, this is absolutely your sweet spot, mate, so jump in, right? But it's it's about, from a basic level, why is it important that it doesn't invert? Well, it's not that it's important that it doesn't invert. It just implies that, uh, no, you know, it's, it's, it's giving you the longer-term bond yield is giving you an impression of where people see growth and inflation in the future. As soon as it all of a sudden starts tipping over, it gives you an impression that, well, hey, things aren't going to be anywhere near as swimmingly good as what they are right now. Uh, there's not anything like you no know, per se that's you know it's that you can't have it happen. It does happen. Yeah. Uh, it's part of a cycle. So, uh, but it's it just gives you that sort of warning as to you know what what is the uh, the long bond market telling you? you know what lies ahead. And uh, you know particularly if it inverts and inverts quite dramatically, and you see you know particularly longer dated yields going and coming a lot. Uh, that will give you a signal that uh, you know people in the bond market in particular are very very concerned about what lies ahead. And the old adage always goes that the bond market knows before the rest of the world. Um, it's been, uh, let's maybe wrap it up with a slightly more cheery chat. Uh, how was the holiday, Dave? Mm. Oh, it was terrible. You know, three weeks in Europe is, uh, is always terrible at the, uh, the best of times. But uh, no, I really enjoyed myself. Uh, switched off, as you can probably tell by some of my commentary today. But um, <laughs> yeah, just uh, hung around uh, northern, uh, northern Italy and uh, went into Austria and Slovenia. Uh, and, and northern Croatia, so hung out with the uh, the Euro Europeans and uh, really loved it. I made sure I'm, I'm a person who doesn't really like to go to big tourist centres. So the biggest city I went to was Milan. Milan was like chock full of people, uh, fairly chaotic and crazy. And so I made the decision there and then to go and focus on small places. Discovered a beautiful town in Austria called Lienz. Uh, if you ever get the opportunity to go there, particularly if you know you're a powder hound, it is absolutely amazing. That looked uh, beautiful. It is uh, is incredible. Having a, I got to enjoy a, a couple of steins up the top of the mountain. So yeah, 2,600 meters above sea level, having uh, steins it was very cheap drunk for me with the uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the amount of oxygen in the air. Uh, and also, there's lots of other beautiful places. Uh, Trento in the, uh, in the the lower Alps in uh, in Italy was fantastic. Um, then ended off in Trieste uh, uh, on the Adriatic. Uh, beautiful place. No, very very little signs of uh, mass tourism there. The only tourists who were around were either Italians or you no, know, uh, you know, people from the other local regions around the, the countries around. Um, and I could see it's a really beautiful spot. And you know, I would suggest that if I probably went back in 10 years' time, uh, it'll probably be full of tourists because it's one of those spots which I think is... You know, it's going to be discovered. It's yeah. going to be discovered. And, I, and I'm probably not helping the course right now, so maybe, yeah. I, maybe I've done my last, uh, last stint in Trieste, but it was yeah, a really good break. And uh, I got to go and uh, meet a lot of interesting people and everything else. And um, the one thing that struck me as well is that Europeans still smoke a lot. Right. And um, <laughs> was, there, was there anything that... Oh, it's always interesting to, um, to, you know, to ask if there was anything 
that really stood out to you about the economy, the economic mood mm-hmm. um, when you were over there, maybe particularly in Italy, uh, given all the chaos there's been? Yes, I could definitely see signs of uh, no, what's been going on from the political standpoint with the, uh, no, the refugees. There was, uh, there was definitely signs of refugees uh, uh, and people who were begging and you know, signs of like, no, um, what you say, illegal commerce going on, trying to go and, and make a living and survive, which is, uh, was quite sad. Um, from an economic standpoint, now I went to both tourist traps and non-tourist traps. The thing that struck me was that it must be doing all right, all the countries that I went to, because there was so few vacant uh, retail outlets that I could see nowhere. Everywhere, yeah, right. everywhere was, and a lot of like, you no, know, a lot of retailers at you know, high-end in places, high-end retailers that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to go and be. And that struck me as like, obviously, you know, the things cannot be, you know, that bad. Uh, when I, the first thing I noticed when I came back and I walked, uh, walked up George Street and Pitt Street. Uh, uh, on Monday, shop closed, closing down. Yeah, scale. yeah. yeah. Shops, you know, shop fronts where there's like you no know, full lease and everything else, and not. It's obviously like you know, apples and oranges of the like, but uh, and that really struck me that uh, no, obviously like you no, know, there's something because why? Why are we doing this here? Why is there, why are there are so many vacancies? You know, there must be you know what the rents too high or is the consumer too soft and too hamstrung here, um, or things is going swimmingly well in Europe? But that was one thing that really struck me. Uh, we should wrap it up, but before we go, James, what's the go with the au pairs? What is the go with the au pairs, Paul? I don't know, Dave. What's the go with the au pairs? What's the go with the au pairs? What is the go with the au pairs? The same team, the same, the same group of people that couldn't get their paperwork together on their S44 stuff uh, are really good at fast-tracking au pairs to come into the country. Yeah, yeah. So, so for anybody who's coming in cold to what is the go with the au pairs, um, do a Google search. If you, if you type in uh, this week, um, certainly the last time I checked, if you type in the words, what's the go... Google autocomplete immediately goes to what's the go with the au pairs. It's to do with, obviously, Peter Dutton, uh, his intervention uh, on behalf of uh, an au pair um, and after lobbying by Gillan McLaughlin and the CEO of the AFL, no less. It's such ridiculous. That uh, he managed to yank her off a plane and just um, so. And, you know, this whole thing about one set of rules for them. Uh, one set of rules but it's the third time that it happened and so the whole internet and I think the you know Twitter uh, for all of the problems with Twitter sometimes it is at its glorious best I will will never leave that website (laughs) it's just too good it's too good we might do our own uh, what's a go with the Opez special here uh, as as, as part of our um, photo for this podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the go with the little thing up here. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, Okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're also all on Twitter individually. That's myself, Paul Colgan, David Scott, and VFS Investment Manager James Whelan. James, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. Always fantastic to be here. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review or search Devils and Details wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. 